Good morning, SLAS listeners, and thank you for joining us for this latest edition of the New Matters Podcast. With me, I have Pierre from Scripps, Florida. Hi, Pierre. Hello. Thank you for having me. Would you like to perhaps give your entire name, title, designation, and how you came to be familiar with this SLAS audience? Sure, absolutely. Uh, my name is Pierre Bailarjan. I'm Senior Robotics Engineer at uh, Scripps Research here in uh, Palm Beach in Florida. And uh, I've been involved uh, with SLAS uh, for quite a long time, going back to the lab automation days. Uh, and I've had an opportunity to present some of the conferences and uh, always, always love to have an opportunity to interact uh, with this community. And we certainly enjoy having you. So I guess my first question on Doc would be, can you tell me about what your work life is like, what you do in 10 words or less? How would you summarize it for an audience? All right, 10 words. I might, I might go just a little bit over here, but I'm basically responsible for the informatics and the laboratory automation that we use in our lab. And that's to support assay development, compound management, and high throughput screening. I think that's more like 20, but I'm going to let you have it. <laughs> okay, expand on that a little bit. I mean, the academic environment needs automation, obviously, um, but we think about it usually as a little bit more medium to low throughput. Um, sort of smaller numbers of compounds, maybe smaller number overall of robots and instruments. Um, what unique challenges do you have as an academic automation person? So I think that some of our challenges are kind of around the scope that you mentioned. So where a, a commercial institute may have a larger budget uh, to bring in different types of automation on a more routine basis, uh, we, we are a little bit more selective in when we're bringing something in. And part of that results in having to uh, maybe come up with some of our own in-house solutions. So not always relying on uh, external vendors to provide automation for us. Um, but even when we do have external automation that's brought in, we may kind of add our own automation on top of that. So the commercial system may get us 90% of the way to where we need to be. And we'll take that last 10% and we'll develop our own software or develop some of our own hardware that interacts with that through uh, vendor-provided APIs or something like that. So a lot of that challenge for us is kind of getting the maximum amount of value we can out of the, the resources that we have available to us here. That sounds awesome. And I heard two points in there that I want to stop and, and check real quick. One is software and one is hardware. So I'm sure you think of yourself as an engineer and perhaps not a coder, but first hit the software for me and then tell me about the custom hardware. Sure. So a big part of when we were first setting up our lab, over a decade ago was a thought process of uh, how are we going to build a software infrastructure that allows us to support what we're doing in an ongoing manner and not have to kind of reinvent the wheel all the time. So what we did is we purchased in software. Uh, at the time, it was called MDL. It was ICE, uh, Assay Explorer, Play Manager, and Cambio. Oh, yeah. MDL ISIS. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, when we purchased the software and we were very specific that we wanted to have access to the underlying databases. We needed to have software APIs that would allow us to build on top of this software over time. Uh, and that's what we've done. So we've taken the past uh, you know, decade, we've built our own uh, web-based services on top of that. We've integrated a lot of automation that we purchased in from different vendors. Um, and so having access to this initial kind of foundation, if you will, has allowed us to build out quite a bit and not have to you know, bring in new software every year to address some issue. Uh, but when there's some new process that comes up or some new challenge, we're able to just extend what we already have in place 
instead of starting from scratch every time. And, and I guess that means you're also not budget limited or process limited, right? Correct. So you know, it's it's basically the the time and, and energy that we have here of what what are the challenges that we have and what kind of uh, resources can we develop. And so one of the interesting things I think about what we're doing is the folks who use our software in the lab are generally also involved in developing the software. So if you have a, a you know something that you're using and it's not functioning exactly the way you want, you're able to modify it to do what you want. And I think that's pretty powerful. And you know, not relying on throwing a problem over a wall and then waiting for a response and hoping you know that you can get something that does what you want. Instead, you can just kind of take what you need to do and, and implement that on your own. Yeah, always best practice to get your end users invested in the end solution, right? Absolutely. So, yep. To that point, I'm curious. Let's go back to the hardware aspect, and I'm curious when you talk about these technologies that you adapt to work with the corporate automation. What mm -hmm. types of technologies are these? Uh, so the types of technologies that we, we've used. So we're using all kinds of uh, liquid handling equipment. Obviously, we've got uh, automated platforms for doing high throughput screening uh, to assist basically all the three portions I mentioned before. So support of assay development, compound management, and high throughput screening. Um, so we've got you know plate readers, uh, liquid dispensers, products for doing LCMS, uh, and everything around that. And these all have their own kind of ecosystems, right? So uh, we're trying to find out how do we get each of these things uh, to integrate as closely as possible to our LIMS infrastructure uh, so that we're not you know moving data files around manually or doing anything like that. Ah, yes, the famed integration layer. And do you find that it's more challenging to integrate things when there's not a lot of sort of driver packages and things behind it? Do you feel like you have to code at that level? Or is there something where it's a little bit um, easier to do? Um, maybe you can help coach me here. Yeah, sure. So it, it kind of depends. Each each vendor has their own kind of you know level of access. So uh, there are certainly some APIs that are more accessible and user-friendly than others. Uh, and there are some where you know we're, we're interacting directly with the database of the instrument that, that's running. I would say they each have their advantages and disadvantages. Certainly, some of the larger vendors will have a kind of a more polished API, if you will, uh, that makes development a little bit easier. Uh, but they, they each have their challenges, and you know we're able to work around those to, to implement them with our with our infrastructure. Cool. That sounds awesome. Uh, Pierre, I'm, I'm curious because I have tracked what you've contributed to SLAS both in your journals and also your conference presentations, as you've suggested. And I do see a lot of really neat things that you've helped invent, such as the illuminated microplate, um, such as the 3D printed labware solutions. Can you tell me what's the most exciting amongst all the things you've contributed? What's the biggest thing or most exciting thing for you that you've done? I think the most exciting thing for me recently has been the microplate illumination panel that we've come up with. Uh, that was kind of an interesting challenge in not only providing an opportunity for me to learn some new technologies, uh, but also doing something that was kind of unique in the open source space, at least in terms of what, what's available for uh, laboratory automation. So uh, we had looked and we were interested in finding a way to illuminate microplates, and there were commercial systems available. But we're really looking for something that would allow us to kind of hack on a platform internally and do a number of different uh, things we're interested in for both compound management applications. Uh, we've got some liquid handling QC applications that we're using this for. And so uh, that, that's really been interesting in, in having an opportunity to explore uh, a new kind of uh, space and development space that I hadn't I had a lot of experience with previously. So, so I'm going to try to explain this for the users who aren't maybe used to seeing this or aren't holding one in their hands. This sort of almost looks, since we're recording this around the holidays, this looks almost like a Christmas tree, but on a microplate, right? You can Absolutely. you can control the frequencies of light. You can control the, the well illumination frequency so that you can say, okay, these ones that are hits are lit up blue, and these ones that are not are lit up green or yellow. Can you describe a little bit more? Absolutely. So what you can, what you can imagine here is we've got a uh, electronics panel 
And it's set up in, in such a way that if you were to take this panel and put it under a microplate, either a, a 96 or 384 well microplate, each well of the microplate would have a, a LED underneath it. And each one of those LEDs uh, can be controlled to be any color that you would like. Uh, so it could be red, blue, green, it could be some combination, you know, purple. And you can control the intensities, you can control if you want to make it blink, or if you want to have a series of LEDs eliminated. And so the application for us in our lab, uh, for example, is we can use this for uh, offline cherry picking. If you want to track moving of samples from one microplate into another, you could do that. Uh, if you would like to do some kind of, you, you mentioned looking like a Christmas tree. So we also use this, we've created a portable unit uh, that we can use for like lab tours. So if we want to visualize what's happening in a microplate for someone who may not be familiar with uh, some of the laboratory procedures and some of the instrumentation we have when we give tours, uh, we're able to, to use that to help show people in a visual way what's occurring in these plates. So an outreach component there too, because you can't always drag a big yellow arm with you down to the local high school. Absolutely. <laughs> Got it. Understood. So, so tell me, you obviously have passion for inventing these lab hacks, as you call them. Um, how did you come to choose this career? You know, why, why this? Why laboratory automation? So, yep, that's a great question. So when I was uh, doing my undergraduate work and then on to graduate work in, in college, I uh, kind of discovered I had an interest in robotics. Uh, I started off, I had a, a professor by the name of Dr. Oje Marquez, and he was very encouraging in saying, you know, whatever project you would like to, to work on, you can. And so I had done some very simple things with servo-controlled arms that could pick up objects and identify objects. And after I completed those classes, we were able to get a a robotics class offered at the university. And at, during that time at, at that robotics class, uh, we had a, a system that was donated from Motorola. And so they used to, down here in South Florida, they used to manufacture cell phones. And uh, they used these systems, these print and apply systems to put labels onto cell phones as they were coming off of uh, the production line. And they had donated one of these robots to our school. And as part of this robotics class that I ended up taking, uh, we reverse engineered this print and apply system to actually do pipetting. So it was a four channel, kind of a very crude. Oh, that's cool. And uh, it took us a number of months, which is actually interesting to look at in retrospect because uh, we're now doing some open source development for a, a liquid handling system here. And so to see that comparison and contrast of how much effort and energy that was almost 20 years ago for me now, uh, versus what this is like now with some of these open source uh, projects that are out there. Um, and so that, that was kind of the, the genesis for me. So I, I worked on that kind of reverse engineered pipetting system. And then I actually uh, kind of looked at it, uh, interviewed here at Scripps, and I showed them, you know, we've reverse engineered this pipetting robot. And they said, well, that's interesting. Would you like to see the pipetting robots we've got here? And <laughs> they're were, they were quite a bit more sophisticated <laughs> than what we came up with at school. But uh, the crossover there was was pretty obvious. So uh, that was kind of how I, I got started in uh, in the laboratory space here at Scripps. That's great. So I guess your recommendation then to uh, future budding robotics engineers is to find outmoded uh, automation engineering from other firms and to re-engineer <laughs> it or something different? Uh, that, you know, that, I think that that kind of is part of it. So for me, it's uh, I see a lot of value in project-based learning. So if you're interested in learning some new skill or some new technology, uh, for us, the, the reverse engineering of this pipetting robot was really an opportunity to learn some new systems we weren't familiar with, right? So whether you want to learn 3D printing or software development or database tools, I always found, as with that case, that having a project that you're trying to uh, tackle is kind of very motivating and it gives you good deadlines and gives you a direct application of what you're trying to accomplish. 
Uh, so I would say for younger generations who want to do that, if you can find a project that you want to uh, apply and work towards, that, that's a great way to do it. So I'm curious uh, about that because project-based learning, I agree, has a lot of heft and can really teach people skills that they don't even know they need to know until they're there working on it. What types of projects do you think are tenable for a college-aged or grad school-aged audience that maybe isn't quite sure and is thinking about this industry but doesn't know which way to go? Like, Where should they start? Uh, if you're looking for inspiration, I would say there, there's lots of great resources sources online. So uh, obviously one is, is YouTube. You can go on YouTube and find a ton of great videos from very creative people who are creating different, uh, whether they're engineering or science-based or whatever the project is. And they'll often not only show you what the project is they've created, but they will uh, show you how they've built it. Um, another great uh, way to explore is to go to a conference like SLAS or uh, maybe go to something local like your Maker Faire. Um, I like to go to various conferences and things like Maker Faire because they often provide kind of a, a point of inspiration where you're kind of look, you're going around and you see something that you weren't previously kind of familiar with, and it can spark some opportunity or thought for you uh, to say, "Oh, well, here's this thing that I hadn't seen before, but you know, I have an application or some problem I'm trying to solve, and this actually mm -hmm. gives me an idea of where I can go from here." I'm curious, actually. I, I know you do some 3D printing and robotics work outside the context of scripts. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what are you doing with robots for fun? Uh, robots for fun. Uh, <laughs> so, I guess that goes back to my kind of grad school days. Robots for fun started off with uh, I had an air hockey table that uh, we hooked up a little robot to that would Sweet. automatically identify where the puck was and play air hockey. So there's there's that kind of you know hobby grade uh, small servo arms that I like to to tinker with. These days I'd say mostly uh, uh, kind of hobby grade electronics. There's lots of very interesting projects online you can go and buy uh, kind of pre packaged electronic uh, kits to learn how to solder or how to do electronics design. And I think those are, are fairly fascinating too. And anyway, everybody should learn how to solder, but everybody be safe, please. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. You did mention SLAS and it might be a good way to tie up here. Um, SLAS 2020, as we record this, is about 40 days away. Um, who are you most excited to meet there, to network with? Um, what, what program are you looking forward to the most? So I'm looking forward to participating in the open source automation session uh, that'll be occurring on Wednesday of the conference. Uh, and kind of going back to that idea of you know seeing all the people who are there and pre presenting their projects and looking for those opportunities to get that spark of what are other people doing? How are they looking at some of these challenges? Uh, one of the things I also quite enjoy about the SLAS conference is having an opportunity to walk the show floor and see all the different posters. Uh, there's always really interesting content that people are creating there in those posters and sharing how they've solved problems in their lab uh, that are often overlapping some of the problems we have in our lab, right? So... Uh, seeing that uh, sharing of knowledge is great. And we often come back with new kind of perspectives on how we can address some of the challenges in our lab. You hear that, uh, budding students and entrepreneurs? Uh, submit posters because Pierre may find you and then you can <laughs> learn how to be him someday. <laughs> That's great. Any any other closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with, Pierre? Uh, you know, I, I read a, a book by Adam Savage recently. He's, he put out this new book called Every Tool's a Hammer, and he was talking about the kind of the value of sharing your work. Uh, and there's an opportunity to do that at SLAS, right? So whether that's via posters or written manuscripts, uh, whether you're posting a blog about some of your work or going to conferences, seeing some of these presentations, I think that sharing your work is a very valuable thing. You know, I'm always excited to see what other folks are doing. Uh, like I said, to, to see what that kind of overlap is and see what you may not know that you may have an opportunity to learn at some of these events. Thank you. And that's the best thing I could think of to close on. So without further ado, um, thank you for your time. And we look forward to seeing you on the show floor at San Diego. Great. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs>